The Gospel of Mark is giving us these really beautiful pictures of who Jesus is so that we will believe in him and follow him. And we saw last week in verses 9 through 11 the baptism of Jesus. And it's not just simply telling a story of, oh, and by the way, Jesus was baptized, but that this was a picture of Jesus' coronation. This is his enthronement imagery that he has come to be king and savior, redeemer and ruler over heaven and earth. And it's all being displayed in the baptism scene. Yet rather than Jesus being treated with some kind of royal reception or some kind of royal celebration, we notice that here in Mark 1 and verse 12 is that he is appointed by the Spirit for a much different task. And he must meet Satan in the wilderness. That is where he must go next. And this encounter with Satan is a theme in this gospel that will be prominent uh, in this first chapter. But we will observe it throughout the study of this gospel where we will see these various uh, conflicts that describe Jesus in conflict with Satan, with demons, with nature, with the Jewish leaders, even his own disciples and showing his superiority and showing his rule. And one of the big ideas and why we've talked about this theme being the king's cross is that one of these big themes is that we are seeing the king establish his kingdom. And it is an establishment of his kingdom even to the resistance of much of the physical and spiritual world. And this is really the initiation of that. And so as we begin to look at the temptation of Jesus, we should not see it as a series of unfortunate events, but rather that Jesus is purposefully led into the wilderness by the Spirit. Along those lines, it is extremely tempting in seeing the brevity of verses 12 and 13 to really want to go to Matthew's Gospel and read all the details of the three temptations and how it all played out. And I cautioned us at the beginning of this study, we don't want to do that. There is a reason that Mark doesn't have those things contained in his gospel. That is for Matthew and for Matthew's purpose and for Matthew's point in his gospel. And evidently it is not to Mark's purpose that the Holy Spirit moves Mark then in this gospel to not record those details. What we want to do is spend our time looking at, well, what is Mark trying to show us about the temptation scene? And what is unique about his record of this so that we can see more clearly what God wants us to see about Jesus and what we learn then as to why we would follow him and what makes him then a glorious king. And so I I encourage you not to put Matthew's gospel into your mind at this moment, but to leave it aside because we have something very special here in the way that Mark gives us this uh, scene and this testing idea. It is interesting that, that the brevity of Mark's gospel, again, that I will probably make mention of many times, to not allow us to think that that means this is an insignificant part of the scripture because it is only two sentences. <laughs> we go, okay, well, it's only two sentences. Let's just move right along and get on to the rest of the story. But the brevity is there. It's concise, but with purpose. And there's a reason why Mark tells this the way that he does. 
In keeping this in connection to what just happened, remember we have the baptism scene here of Jesus, that Jesus comes up out of the water. We have the declaration of the Father. And now immediately Jesus goes into the wilderness. And just to keep in mind that we have these Exodus-type images that are found in the life of Jesus that are being played out here. Remember in Israel's history that Israel passes through the Red Sea after leaving Egypt and then immediately is put into the wilderness for a time of testing. And this is what we now see in parallel with Jesus. Is Now, immediately after His baptism, after passing through the waters, where must He go next? He's going to go into the wilderness. And so it is interesting, this wilderness scene, why is He there for 40 days? Why not just be there for one? I mean, think about it for a minute. In, in terms of the other Gospel accounts saying there were three temptations... That doesn't require 40 days to, to do all that. We could have you know, handled that in perhaps an hour or less. Why is He there for 40 days in the wilderness? And yet, the idea of the 40 days and 40 years are, are, are images that God uses an awful lot. Uh, throughout the Scriptures, you will get these scenes in terms of Israel being in the wilderness for 40 years. That... Israel has 40 days and 40 nights while Moses is up on the mountain. Elijah is 40 days and 40 nights and he's led to to Mount Sinai. Why do you have all of these images about being at the wilderness or being at Sinai except that the image that comes across to us is that the wilderness is, is always pictured as a place of testing, as a proving ground. And that's what happens throughout Israel's history. When Israel is in the wilderness, why are they out there for 40 years? Well, certainly it's part of their condemnation, but it's also a testing. That's what even the writer of Hebrews speaks of them failing in the wilderness under the testing that they had endured. While Moses is on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, it is a testing period for Israel while they remain at the base of the mountain. Are they going to be faithful to God and obey His words? Elijah, as he feels that he is the only one left who is willing to serve God and stands against King Ahab and all the prophets that stand against him and the message coming to him that he's going to surely die is a time of testing for him that as he's in the wilderness in terms of will he be faithful and prove himself loyal to God. And the reason why that is so significant here is because at the baptism of Jesus, the Father has declared something of critical importance. This is my beloved Son, and it's in Him that I am well pleased. And as those words hit the air, the question is then, will he prove that to be true? Will he continue to be the delight of the Father and be faithful to the Father and do all that the Father has said? Others have entered into the wilderness the time of testing and proving like Israel and failed catastrophically. And now is this grand moment. You have been coronated as king, declared to be the son, the one that the scriptures have prophesied of, and God declaring his success. He is the one in whom I am well pleased. He will accomplish the mission. He will fulfill all of my purposes. And the very next scene is the temptation scene. 
to go into the wilderness and see this proving ground if he will fulfill the Father's mission and be what the Father claims him to be, the beloved Son in whom he is well pleased. In thinking along those lines then, the first thing that we are given here is as he comes into the wilderness these 40 days, it says in verse 13 that he is being tempted by Satan. I think it's important to underscore that for a moment. Because I think we sometimes just have a tendency to think, well, Jesus was tempted. And in our culture today, it is as if Satan is merely a personification of evil. You know, he's not real. There's just this, you know, moral goodness and moral evil. And it's just this tug of war struggle between light and dark, good and evil, back and forth. And I want us to recognize that Satan's not a fairy tale or mythological being that personifies some kind of evil in the world. That he is described as an individual, as the spiritual being. He's not just some kind of idea. But here what we are witnessing here is this clash that is about to happen between these two spiritual beings. We have the Son of God and we have the Satan. In fact, Satan is a description. It is a title. The word just simply means the adversary. And Satan is an adversary of God and he is an adversary of those who follow God. And so here is this picture of somebody who is real, a spiritual being who has now arrived and he is going to now tempt Jesus. It's not just I'm in the wilderness and bad things are going to happen, but there is an intention by an evil spiritual being to try to bring about the destruction of God's plan that is intended in Christ. This is a monumental event as it's being played out. Because what we have is this deceiver of the whole world. And he is going to take his stand now against God's anointed. The one who is chosen to be king, son of God. He is the one to redeem and save the world. And that is not Satan's plan. That Satan is an adversary to those plans and that purpose of God. You see that he's not just simply a personification of evil. When you read things like 1 Peter 5 and verse 8 where we read, be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Seeking someone to devour. And notice Peter says, that's your adversary. He's not just God's adversary. He's also yours. He stands against you. It's not just, you know, generic evil. But this is the deceiver of the world. Who goes about trying to destroy those who are followers of Him. And so this becomes a a, a very big moment. In essence, what I submit to you is that what is being described in the temptation of Jesus is a conflict between two rulers and a conflict between two kingdoms. 
They are now coming to a head at this moment. Jesus is king and ruler over heaven and earth, who has come against Satan, who is the prince of the power of the air and the ruler of darkness. And the battle then is laid before us, a spiritual battle. And it's not just simply a picture of good versus evil but is a picture of God and His anointed and against every spiritual being and human being that refuses to submit to God and His anointed. In fact, if you remember Psalm 2, Psalm 2 plays out that very idea. Is that the nations and people rage against God and His anointed. This is the conflict. Is that God has His purposes that are to be fulfilled in His anointed Son, And Satan and all those who align with him resist that purpose. And it all comes down to this amazing point. In fact, notice how 1 John 3 verse 8 describes the role of Jesus where it says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. But listen to this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. There is a mission here. And God's mission through the anointed is to destroy Satan. To destroy what he's done. To win in this spiritual battle. And we would not begin to pretend to think that Satan is going to sit back and go, okay... Go ahead, God. But that this testing moment is everything. Because what Satan is attempting to do is subvert the reign of Christ and establish his rule to establish this kingship. Because Satan knows that's what he's come to do. If we had another half an hour, we'd go to Revelation 12 and read about that very scene that's laid out there of how Satan is trying to destroy the child but fails, tries to destroy the people of God and fails over and over again. Satan trying to destroy the plan of God and fails again and again and again. And so the devil therefore must subvert this attempt. The wilderness is a proving ground as Satan now goes on the offensive against the Lord and His anointed. And so as we come into this scene, I want us to realize Satan is real. And the conflict is real. And what hangs in the balance is all of eternity. He must fulfill the Father's plan and be the beloved Son in whom the Father delights. Or all hope is lost for all humanity. The battle is real. The conflict is critical. The proving ground now of this moment is everything. And that's why it is drawn to our attention at this scene. And so verse 13, He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And He was with the wild animals. Now, who has not read that? And went, now why do we have that detail? (laughs) Because Mark is unique in that. The other Gospels don't say, oh, by the way, there were wild animals all around. And, you know, this isn't National Geographic that, you know, this wants you to visualize that wilderness scene and 
You know, there he is fasting 40 days, and yep, there were animals there too. There is something very big about what's being declared by that. And to hopefully rest in our minds, you start talking about being in the middle of nowhere, being in the midst of a wilderness, and you are among the wild animals. Does that sound like good to you? No. You know, he's not surrounded by little kitty cats and, and tweety birds. This is a portrayal of danger. There's a, a dangerous scene that is being played out. Forty days, not just simply dealing with the fasting and dealing with temptation and what Satan is throwing at him, but even Mark wants to layer on that a portrayal of danger. This is dangerous where he's at. But what is interesting is that it's stated as if he's with the wild beasts, but he's fine. He's surrounded by those animals, but he's okay. He's fine. And why would Mark want to do that? I submit to you, as we are going to do over and over again in our study of Mark, it all goes back to Isaiah. It all goes back to Isaiah. Listen to what Isaiah says over in Isaiah 43. And as we read this, please listen to the Exodus language that is also involved with this description of what is going to happen when God comes. It's all kind of thrown together by Isaiah. Isaiah 43, verse 16. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path of, in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Does that sound like the Exodus scene of coming through the waters, destroying the enemies behind, laid to the ground, never to rise again? Exodus language is being portrayed. Remember not the former things or consider the things of old. He says, okay, you remember that great deliverance in Exodus? Okay, I don't want you to remember that anymore. I know it was great. But he says, behold, I am doing a new thing. And now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I form for myself, that they might declare my praise. This is an amazing prophecy that's given where God says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to come and rescue my people again. And what's so fascinating is he says, now think about the Exodus. He starts doing it, going through the waters and destroying the enemies. And then after he describes it, he says, now don't think about that. (laughs) I want you to think of an Exodus, but not like that. I'm going to do a new Exodus. I'm going to do it all over again, but not like it was back there. I'm going to do it all over again when I come. And when I come, it's going to be a new thing. And I'm going to make a way in the wilderness. We've talked about Mark keen on wilderness is a very big idea. John is in the wilderness. The people are going to the wilderness. Jesus must be in the wilderness. Wilderness imagery. The Lord now is here. He is in the wilderness. And what's going to happen when he's in the wilderness when God comes? The wild beasts will honor me. There will be no danger there. 
Because the Lord has taken a stand. It is the arrival of God. And so what Mark is keying in for us in this scene of this temptation as he's in the wilderness is that this is the arrival of the Lord, but it is also the arrival of the new exodus. It is the arrival of the salvation of the people of God. What is being declared in that, though the text doesn't explicitly say, and he defeated Satan three times by the wild beast being there, is the success of Christ. He has come and the wild beasts honor him, which means he is now there in the wilderness ready to open the doors to a new exodus to bring about a new salvation to his people, to set them free, not from Egypt, but to set them free from sin, to set them free from Satan, whom the Christ is defeating at this very moment. So Mark brings in that history and then he pulls a little bit more at the end of verse 13 when it says, and the angels were ministering to him. Again, another confirmation of Jesus' success in the wilderness that Mark wants us to see. But I want you to notice there is something unique again about what Mark does because it is not described as after the 40 days were done, Now the angels at the end of the trial come and serve him and minister to him. That's not what Mark says. The language is in the imperfect, and that's why most of your translations will say, and the angels were ministering to him. And the language is that it was they were there serving him, ministering to him the whole of the 40 days, not just at the very end. Mark wants you to see it a little different. And he's presenting to you that God is with Jesus throughout the whole ordeal. That God is with him from start to finish. Why does Jesus go to the wilderness? The Spirit leads him out there. This is designated by God for him to do. Go to the wilderness. Go to the conflict. Go to the trial. Go to this ordeal. And God remains with him throughout the 40 days. Now, what's the big deal to all that? Why, Mark, do you have this here? Why why do this? What is the big deal? Two things I want you to see this morning, and then the lesson will be yours. Why this message about the trials and temptations of Jesus in the wilderness? If you want to turn there, I'll flash them on the screen as well, but we're going to spend the rest of our time in Hebrews 2, because Hebrews 2 relates to the effect of what Jesus does in this conflict with Satan. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, speaking of Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Notice how the the writer begins this idea. This beloved Son, the Son of God, the one in whom God delights, He comes and He shares in our humanity so that He will be victorious over Satan. In fact, notice it says that He might break the power of Him who holds the power of death. The whole idea is Jesus is being victorious over Satan. 
What Jesus is going to be portrayed as throughout Mark's Gospel is victorious over every element of resistance against Him. And our first enemy on deck is Satan. We must deal with Him. And so Mark brings in the temptation scene right before our eyes and shows Him as victorious. And why is it so critical for Him to be victorious? The rest of that verse says, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. The whole idea is setting free. Exodus. That we would be set free from our sins. And the writer of Hebrews zeroes in on that, that the reason he must share in his humanity is destroy the power of Satan. And we must see this temptation sequence then as a pivotal point in all of human history. This is a critical point. For if the Son of God at this moment chooses to fulfill his own desires and own wishes, to cave in to the temptations that are played before him, the hope of humanity is lost because this is the only way that we will be set free from the enslavement to sin and fear of death that we have. When we look at the life of Jesus and we see the things that He is doing, it is easy for us to know the end before the beginning. And go, well, I know it's all going to turn out well in the end. It's almost like when you watch a movie like for the second or third time and, and all the climax and all the intensity is lost. Because you know how it all plays out. You already saw it. And it's easy to do that in the Gospels. Well, we know it all turns out well in the end. You know, He's going to raise from the dead. It's going to be great. And we miss the intensity of the Gospel story that's being portrayed for us as we move through the life of Jesus. To see the intensity of the moment is here is the, the, the enthroned King. And now He goes against Satan. And everything is on the line. Because by winning, he sets us free from the power of sin. But not only that, notice the rest of what the writer of Hebrews ties to that in verse 16. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. That's us. For this reason, what reason? To help us. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And I'd like to underline those final words in verse 18. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What is portrayed for us is not only is Jesus dealing with temptation so that he can fight against Satan, 
conquer His power over sin and death and set us free. But there is another reason why He became human. The beginning of verse 16, to help us. This is the reason He was made like them, fully human in every way. So that verse 18, He Himself suffered when He was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Here is a template that is being laid out in the Gospel of Mark and the temptation of Jesus. In that when Jesus is in the wilderness, God was with Him every single day. The angels were continually serving Him. God is with Him. God is with Him. God is with Him. We've been studying Exodus, and we're going to then move it into Numbers, and we're going to notice something there as well as we're looking at this whole scene of the sin of Israel. And Moses pleads with God, You must go with us. You cannot leave us. And God agrees. And while Israel is in the wilderness, God is with them. Every single day. God leading them, with them, helping them, providing for them, manna, quail, all the provisions. I love later on when it's reminded of them, your sandals didn't wear out while you were in that wilderness for 40 days because God was with you. God was with Israel in the wilderness. God is with Jesus in the wilderness. And the whole picture that is being laid out by the writer of Hebrews and what is presented to us, God is with you. And if we didn't realize it, we're in the wilderness right now on our way to the promised land following that template. The promised land lies ahead. And right now we're moving through the wilderness on our way. And we're being tempted. And we're being tested. And we're being tried. And God is with His people. God is with His Son when He's in the wilderness being tempted. God is with Israel while they were being tried and tempted. And God is with His people. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says the whole reason He becomes human is not only to destroy the works of the power of the devil, but so that He can help the descendants of Abraham. That He is there to help us. This temptation scene becomes a template of what it means to be a follower of Him because we have not been left alone. That our help is not only that we have been freed from our sins, and that is a very big help. That cannot be underemphasized in any way. But it's not that God only came and freed us from our sins and then said, good luck to you, you've been set free, hope it works out for you on your journey. But that you've been set free from your sins and that He continues to help us to this very day so that we can succeed over the temptations and trials that we face. This is why Peter would say, resist the devil, he will flee from you. Why Paul would write, put on the whole whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That God is with you. You are not alone in your trials. You are not alone in your suffering. You are not alone in your difficulties. You have not been put into this life. And God just said, hope it works out for you and I'll see you one day in heaven. Good luck to you. 
whole point is that he's there for us. I know we wish we had a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, you know, and go, okay, now I can see that he's with us. But you know, God did one better. God did one better. We look at those things. We want to see the pillar of fire and pillar of cloud because those represent God is with us. But what is the whole weight of the New Testament trying to tell you? The very beginnings in speaking about the coming of the Christ, what shall He be called? Emmanuel, God is with us. That's why He's named that is that His arrival means God is with us. John 1 opens with the very scene that He tabernacled among us. It's relating that whole Old Testament image that God is with us and we see it in Christ. We have seen His glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You have God with you and the reason you know That God is with you through your temptations and through your trials and through your pain and through your suffering and through your difficulty is because we see Jesus who became human, who came here and He lived a life and He conquers Satan and He sets us free from sin and then makes a promise, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, Hebrews 13. He's with you. And that temptation scene is portraying that God never forsakes those who are with Him. He did not forsake the Son. He stayed with Israel through the wilderness. And He stays with us on our way to the promised land. Don't give up on God. Do not turn to sin. And do not fall under the weight of trials. Because God is with you. Do not give up on God. For He has not left you. And God is faithful to His words. When He says, I will not leave you and I will not forsake you. He cannot lie. And He cannot change that promise. So do not give up on Him. Because He is with you today. He will be with you tomorrow. And He will be with you every step of the way. As long as we are in this wilderness, God is with us. I hope that will cause you to want to turn to Jesus this very day. To give your life to Him because we need this God who loves us so much. Now He sends His Son to set us free from sin, to endure temptations and trials be tested in every way just like us so that we can have a faithful high priest that we can go before and tell him here are my concerns here are my troubles here is my suffering here is my pain here is my weakness here are my sins and he hears them and he intercedes for us we have a great intercessor and God is calling for you to come to him today If you've walked away from God, if you've turned your back on Him, if you've been living a life that has had no regard for God, that you would decide today to get your life right with God, to see His love and mercy and faithfulness and turn away from living from self and sin. Follow your Lord Jesus with all of your heart and know that He is with you every step of the way. Won't you come now while we stand and while we sing?